Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. I've entitled my sermon, The Ugly Side of Faith. And maybe this morning it would help if I give you a little bit of a road map where I'm going with this. I want to... Uh, explain to you in in the subject of faith, we have a lot of different concepts of faith. But the book of Hebrews gives this wonderful definition of faith, the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The New Living Translation breaks it down even better in modern terms than that, I believe. It says, The faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Now that also has to be qualified as well because they're not giving you this open invitation to hope for anything. And then faith becomes the mechanism to make that happen. Faith has been so abused in the past two or three decades. You've got the word of faith movement, the faith teachers. Uh, Faith has has been turned into something that becomes a, a manipulative tool to get what we desire. And it's all out of context, totally out of context. But in talking to you about faith, if we're talking about the biblical Biblically defined faith, it's that, that uh, substance of things hoped for, that uh, confidence that the good things, the right things, the godly things, the biblical things that we hope for, it's that confidence that those things are going to come to pass. The promises of God. And it's that assurance that we carry about the things that we do not yet see in fulfillment. When I read about the faith heroes in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, does it happen to you, like it happens to me, that I feel pretty inadequate after reading that chapter? I feel rather insignificant. I can read the 11th chapter of Hebrews and feel like a loser. All these people that have this great, faith. My name's not in there. And I like to think sometimes that I have faith, decent faith, good faith. I would like to think I've got great faith. But I'd, my, my life doesn't match up to the great faith heroes of the 11th chapter of Hebrews. And the reason that such condemnation comes on me for reading Hebrews chapter 11 is because I have too often been guilty of reading only half the story of faith. I read the 11th chapter of Hebrews and what stands out to me is the beautiful side of faith. 
the fun side, the exciting side, the victorious side. And I read that and I think, who am I to even try and make this journey with people like that setting the pace? And then we go to the 12th chapter of Hebrews where the writer starts out that chapter by saying, uh, wherefore, seeing we are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, and we've wrestled with that concept of who these witnesses are. Now, uh, it, it doesn't make any difference, really. It just kind of ties into the 11th chapter to the point where you're thinking that if, if some, some people are watching us, uh, if, if we've got people who have ran the race and done so well, and we're surrounded by these people that have done so well in that, I feel all the more insecure in how well I'm doing in my Christian walk. So that's kind of the roadmap of where I'm going today, is reading the full story of faith, grasping not only the beautiful side, which we so readily see when we read that chapter, but getting our brains wrapped around the ugly side of it, so that when I'm done with this, I hope I'm I'm an encouragement to you that you too can be a hero of the faith even though you know yourself really well and you're not very impressed with yourself, I think you have still every opportunity to be a great hero of the faith. Now, faith is that thing which bridges the gap of our understanding. It bridges the gap of time. It bridges the gap of understanding. And the Bible says in that 11th chapter, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. You've got to chew on that for a minute because it's a little bit of a complex concept. The things that are made were not made out of the things that were visible, that were seen. We're getting down into this description of this creative act. Faith helps me bridge the gap of what I cannot quite understand. Modern science seems to be bent on completely dismissing the concept of God. There's a big movement in modern science to disallow God from being a factor in creation, or even existing as far as science is concerned. They can't prove God in a laboratory, so therefore God does not exist. Yet scientists themselves set forth these theories about our universe, explaining all the things in the universe all by natural causes. And humanistic scientists who bristle at the thought of God being a creator try to explain him away with natural reasonings. But it takes a lot of faith, as you've probably heard or even said yourself, it takes a lot of faith not to believe in God. It certainly takes a measure of faith to believe in God. But when we consider the origins of everything around us, the universe, all that is created, and we take God out of that equation, then we're left with a matter, then how did it happen? The Hubble telescope, the inventor of the Hubble telescope, Edwin Hubble, was able to view 
with the most powerful telescope to date, the outer reaches of the universe, and he discovered that the, the farthest objects away that the telescope could focus in on were moving at an increasing speed away from us. And with their scientific understanding and intellect, they reversed all of that. What they were seeing, they were able to reverse it and calculate it back and coming down to this zero point that you've probably heard the f- expression Big Bang, Big Bang Theory. And as simple as I can put it without being a qualified scientist is simply that there was nothing. And then, boom, there was everything. That's the Big Bang. It just burst into existence. That used to be something that was shunned in Christianity because they thought maybe that was dismissing the concept of God. But it doesn't dismiss the concept of God whatsoever. Uh, God spoke these things into existence. There was this moment of time where there was nothing, and then God spoke it into existence, and there was everything. By the Word, everything was made. So you've got this conflict in how everything came into existence, that scientists and Christians should agree that there's this beginning point before which there was nothing. Now, we can't can't quite grasp the concept of nothingness because when we're trying to think of it, we're always putting something there. There was space. There was time. There was energy. There was matter. But the concept is... There was not time, there was not space, there was not matter, there was not energy, there was nothing. We've got to erase it all. Nothing existed. And then there was an explosion into which came matter and time and space and energy and and all of these things. See, that's deep. That's hard to really get around until my resolution to this conflict is... The uncreated creator spoke these things into existence. Those things which we see, the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen, what we see now, was not made out of what was visible. It explains it all. Big bang. But God's behind it. And even though I I wasn't there and scientists weren't there, and nobody has first-hand testimony, somebody has to bridge the gap. Somehow we have to bridge that gap. Faith bridges the gap of understanding for me because what I can understand about God, what he has shown, those things which he's revealed unto me, I could grasp a hold of so that I can believe in the things I cannot understand about God. The third thing about faith is Faith was a common component of the outstanding men and women of God. And we find listed in the 11th chapter of Hebrews these familiar names, uh, among others as well. Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. And these people all had that common denominator of having had faith, which it's still probably blurry in our mind what kind of faith did they have. Did they have this modern-day, name-it-claim-it, faith-teacher kind of faith? Well, these people just walked around and saying, by faith, I believe there's going to be 
food under this rock for me. And they roll the rock back, and there it is. They're naming it, and they're claiming it. But no, it wasn't that kind of faith. It's been such a perverted faith we're dealing with today. But they are recognized as people that had this common denominator of faith. They, they held on to the promises. They stepped out in faith, and often they stood alone among their peers when nobody else would be trusting God. They believed in God. They trusted in God. When you think about the stories behind these Bible characters, we're powerfully, dramatically inspired and encouraged. And as the writer of Hebrews is going through faith, the definition of faith, the characters of faith, the examples of great faith that he's giving that, that, that just lights us up. He says in verse 32, what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon and Barak, Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets. And here's the good things they did, the admirable things, the powerful things, who through faith conquered kingdoms administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. And women received their dead, raised back to life again. That's the one that just kind of knocks me back. And I go, wow. If I just had that kind of faith, any of those things, stop the mouths of lions, quench the violence of fire, raise the dead back again, and I'm going, I just want that kind of faith. I just have to have that kind of faith. But I know me. And compared to what I'm reading about them, I don't belong in the same class as these people. So I live the rest of my life beating myself up, reading the, the paradigm, the ideal of faith, and realizing I fall so short, I'm ashamed of myself. And just about the time in reading this chapter where I'm just swelling with admiration and saying, God, if I could just be like them, just walk like the faith worthies, just have the power have the miracles. Almost in the same breath, the writer of Hebrews suddenly starts talking about the difficult side of faith. From one sentence to the next, he changes gears. And the part that we are coming to is the part you don't hear preached on very often when we're preaching on the subject of faith. We want to preach on faith that opens blind eyes. And raises the dead and makes the lame walk. We want to bring, preach on this, this faith that moves mountains. And we don't hear a lot about the struggling side of faith. Here's the ugly side. When we left off in the 35th verse, we were talking in the last of this list about women receiving their dead, raised back to life again, and then he says, there were others. How many of you now understand I'm the others? I wonder who you are. I, I don't make that judgment. But if I want to find somebody that I would like to identify with, it's the first ones. 
If I want to find somebody that I truly identify with, I identify with the others. These are all the people that did not attain to the heights and the wonderful things of the first group. Others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them, and they wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. And I'm thinking, that's right where I live, 99% of my life. Metaphorically speaking, I haven't really had to dwell in caves, but spiritually, I feel like that's where I am, you know. I'm struggling with the difficult side of this. So as much as I'm wanting to aspire to that first group, I live where the second group is. And this faith that has been so caricatured by modern-day teachers as being the pathway to everything good, we're told by these modern-day faith teachers that if you just have enough faith, you can move mountains. If you have enough faith, you can live in prosperity. All you have to do is start claiming your benefits and never doubt. We're told if you have enough faith, faith, every disease, every malady will and must be cured. We're told if we have enough faith, we can walk in constant victory and become impervious to all the dangers and the pitfalls and the afflictions and the maladies and the poverty and weakness. And when we're living there, we're in this condemnation. I just don't have enough faith. Otherwise, I wouldn't be struggling like this. But there's some things that can and absolutely do happen to people of great faith. This is the ugly side. This is the reality of faith. It's like, unlike that sanitized, dreamy version peddled by hucksters today who prey on gullible Christians. So here's some things I want to share with you that tell you the other side of faith. Kind of bring it down to the human level. So all of us leave here identifying with what some of these Hebrews of the faith really had to go through. Number one, I suggest to you, real heroes of the faith, they have this experience. They didn't always see their dreams fulfilled in their life. You won't always see all of your dreams fulfilled in your life. No amount of faith that you can muster up will guarantee every one of your dreams and hopes will come true. You're going to meet disappointments. There will be things you hope for you might not ever see. And you don't need to chastise yourself saying only if I'd have had enough faith it would have changed it. Well, I don't have the faith of these faith worthies of Moses, Abraham, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. I don't have the faith of these great people. But we find out that they too had unfulfilled dreams in their life. Moses was this valiant leader of Israel. But as a dying man, he stood on top of Mount Pisgah, Mount Nebo, the same mountain. And that's where God led him, and he said, look out, there's the promised land. Now, after leading 
the people out of Egypt with all the accompanying miracles and putting up with their murmuring and their complaining and all the problems he had in pastoring those people, he finally gets to where they are ready to cross the River Jordan. Moses has blood and sweat and tears and skin in this game, okay? He's the one that has gone through it all, bringing them out and bringing them to the brink of Jordan. But God takes him on a mountain, and he says, Moses, look over. There it is. Forty years of going around the mountain, and here it is. You're ready to cross over the promised land, but you're not going. And the reason Moses wasn't going is because there was a time in the book of Exodus when God told Moses to strike the rock and bring forth water, and he did. And it provided miraculously all the water they needed in the desert place. There was a time recorded in the book of Numbers where they came to a rock, and God said to Moses, now speak to the rock. And Moses, he added two. He didn't just speak to the rock. He was blatantly, willfully disobedient, and he smote the rock. And the Bible says smote the rock twice. And water came gushing out. And God said, you just blew it. Now, I don't have God speaking to me in that kind of immediate feedback in my life. Sometimes I get the sinking sensation, I think I just blew it. But I've never had God come and tell me, and can you imagine how discouraging that would be? One moment. How many of you have moments? One moment you have. You just stepped outside the circle. And God comes down and he says, you just blew it, buddy. It's over. It's done. All that you hoped for, all that you dreamed for, all that you worked for, it'll never happen for you. That had to be crushing to Moses. And that's what happened to him. Because God said, you wouldn't listen to me. Therefore, you do not get to take the children of Israel over. My goodness. You know, that's like, that's like uh, uh, running a race. And you're down to the one-yard mark. And somebody stops you uh, and says, I will not let you carry the baton across the line. Let's let somebody else come in and finish the race for you. you know, I did all the work. I did all the training. I ran this thing. I'm out ahead. But you don't get to cross the line. You don't get the victory lap. Moses didn't get to see his dream fulfilled. This, this story of Moses, it taxes our emotions. We, we go from, from being uh, angry with Moses. I feel that. I'm angry at him. To pitying him. Uh, and, and there's other things that go along with it as we unfold the rest of the story. But it's just a, an emotional roller coaster in reading about Moses here. You, you think of this man that, that invested all that he invested in getting the children of Israel there, and then he, he's forced to stop short. You'll have to pass it off to Joshua and let him take him across because you blew it. That bothers us. Now, in, in this, this story of the, the rock and the water, the rock that he spoke to in Exodus was 
granite-type rock. They, they know of the location, the general uh, geography of the land where they were at that time. And it was a very dense rock, granite-like rock. And you just don't get water out of granite, okay? But God said to Moses, you can strike the rock and I'll bring water out. It was, it was a miracle. It was an obvious miracle for water to come rushing, uh, rushing out of the granite. Nobody doubted that. Everybody knew it was God. Now, the second place they came to was a lot of sands, a, a lot of limestone. And as the rainwaters would come down and work their ways down into the cracks of the limestone water and form in pools, and the water would find places as the pressure built up to seep out of the rocks, the, the heavy mineral uh, content of, of this water rushing through the limestone <clears throat> would eventually seal up the hole where it is exiting. So all this water was backing up because all these minerals would crystallize. So people who really know what they were doing in this area could see where the crystals had formed and they could take a rock or, or something and just knock that loose and water would come out. So see, it's entirely possible at this point for Moses to provide water for the people simply by hitting the rock. And that's not a miracle. And that's the reason God said to Moses, this time, it's hands off. I'm going to bring water out of this rock. We know water's there. We know how to do it. But you're not going to do it. You're not going to put your hand to do it because I still want people to know that I'm the one that's providing the miracle. So that's the reason when Moses struck the rock, he make it, made it look like he was doing it. And it could be reasonably, reasonably explained. And God didn't have a chance to show his miracle-working power at that point. And once again, that's, that's where God says to Moses, you don't understand. There's a reason why I want things done the way I want things done. Moses took the glory away from God. This, this point where Moses disobeyed, giving no thought whatsoever to how big of a mess he was about to make for himself. He was pointing away from God. He was stealing the glory from the Lord. He was making it look like he was just doing the work of a skilled wilderness survival, a clever wilderness guide that knows how to get water in strange places. And before he strikes this rock, he makes this little speech, and he says, listen, you rebels. Now, he's now placing himself above the people. I'm good, but you're bad. I'm your leader, but you're rebels. And he, and he says, listen, you rebels. Must we bring water out of this rock? And you have to understand, we was not me and God. We was me and Aaron. Must we bring water out of this rock? Now, one commentator says that that we, W-E, was the fatal pronoun. You know, in serving God, the fatal pronouns have to do with I and me and we. Anytime it begins to be about you, that's a spiritual killer. 
Moses could have introduced this and said, the, the Lord who has been faithful to lead us through and provide for us will once again bring water out of this rock. But watch carefully. I won't have to use my hand. I won't do anything. I'm just going to speak to the rock. Now, I don't, know, I don't know what he was going to say to the rock. It's not recorded in the Bible. But it may have been something as simple as, Hello, how are you? What's your name? It didn't get that far, though. He didn't speak to the rock. He hit the rock. And we are sometimes get so full of ourselves when our ministry begins to take on those fatal pronouns. Look what I did. You, you remember whenever Nebuchadnezzar had his great kingdom, the, the Babylonian kingdom, and the, the famous, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the famous uh, hanging gardens in Babylon. Oh, they were gorgeous. And the king walks around and says, look what I've done. And God smote him with insanity for seven years and then brought him out of his insanity to where he said, uh, look what God's done. <laughs> you know, you, it, it's a real eye-opener to turn into a wolf for seven years and eat grass. You know, it's just, it, it'll get your attention real quick. And I, I get real concerned when ministries become about the minister. When church ministry becomes about the church. When sermons become about people and leaders. Because these are fatal pronouns. They'll kill us. I've put a little tag on my email. I did this many, many years ago when I first learned about email. And right away I put a little tag on there that every time I send an email automatically at the bottom, he must increase, I must decrease. Because I need this reminder that the farther I go in service to the Lord the more transparent I need to become. Because the more apparent I become, the less God can work through me. But I have to remember it's all about Him. It's not about me. Shun those ministries, people. I'm, I, I'm, I'm counseling you. Shun those ministries that are led by a braggart that have to get up and talk about how great they are. One of the most famous television evangelist in our lifetime that had a great fall. I won't name names, but you know who I'm talking about. Had this huge television ministry. It was just it was blossoming, burgeoning. He was the hot name for several years in evangelism. And I watched as the spirit of this man just deteriorated. And he began to work the people. And there were certain things he could say when the sermon got a little bit dry that he could pump them up and put them on their feet in two minutes. He knew how to work the crowd. And he would sneer in the camera, television camera, and, and talk about how great and big his ministry was. Until the day that I saw him talking about he said, me and my cousin, both of them piano players, me and my cousin, he said, we have the fastest piano fingers in the world. Now, why would you gather people together to minister to them and to minister God and to, and to draw them into salvation and get up there and take time talking about how great you are? And my heart just broke as I saw 
a man that was falling and failing, and it became more and more about him and less and less about God until we woke up to the news one day that he'd been caught down in the red light district with a prostitute. Because me and I and we will kill you. It's not about me. It's about God. Paul, in the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians, goes back to this story of smiting the rock. And he tells us that it's a revelation from Paul the Apostle. We didn't understand this until Paul, through the anointing of the Holy Spirit, wrote this down and made explanation. But Paul says, do you remember whenever the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness? you remember their murmurings and their complainings and how God dealt with them? Do you remember the favor they had as they were in the cloud, under the cloud, passed through the sea? you remember all these miracles and things? you remember the smiting of the rock? you remember the water that came forth out of the rock? And then the apostle says, and that rock was Christ. Which helps us to understand why God was so angry with Moses when he wouldn't listen to him. Simple obedience. Because God saw that this was a type, a foreshadow, that one time the rock is smitten and it brings forth. But you don't have to keep crucifying Jesus Christ afresh. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews regarding this, that those who are backsliding, I'm just using a quick term to summarize what they're saying, they've once tasted of this heavenly gift and they've walked away and they've denied this. It says that they crucify the Son of God afresh, putting Him to an open shame. It's not a good thing to live a life that crucifies the Son of God a second time, a third time, a fourth time. Crucified once and for all is enough. But if you do not live... A righteous life before him, you are bringing humiliation and open shame to God with repeated crucifixion of the one who died for you. And this is what caused Moses to stop short. The second thing about faith is there is no degree of faith whatsoever you can achieve that is going to spare you from the difficulties and the injustices of life. I wish I could agree with the faith teachers that all you have to do is get your faith up here. And suddenly you won't have any more problems. But it's a lie. The truth about faith is you can have world record faith. And you're still going to have problems. There's still going to be difficulties. And you're still going to face some injustices in life. I I just take for a quick example. Let's go with one of the early names mentioned about faith. Abel. He was the good son. He was the one that got murdered as a young man. He was the one that was listed in the book of Hebrews as being a man of great faith. But the earthly injustice was that he should be the one that dies. And Cain should get to live on. That's not fair at all. But sometimes even the great heroes of the faith find out that they are subject to the injustices of life. And as it talks about these heroes of the faith, and I repeat, they were tortured, they faced jeers and flogging, chains and imprisonment, stoned to death, literally sawn in tune, skewered with swords, 
Some never knew what it was like to have a nice suit of clothes. It says they just wore the skins of animals that they could find and fashion while they were in the wilderness area. They were persecuted. They were mistreated. And all of their faith did not do one thing to improve their conditions. But what their faith did do is it took them through it. No matter what they had to face, their faith got them to the other side. Number three, some people of great faith were also people of great failures. Look at the list and consider the flaws of these people. We know that Moses went up and had this wonderful mountaintop experience where he took the tablets of the laws written by God, came down, and for crying out loud, got mad and broke the tablets. You you know how bad you feel when you break something that belongs to somebody else? I remember one time uh, my wife wanted to present a beautiful spray of flowers, a beautiful bouquet of flowers, or whatever the word is. I'm not a flower person. And she had her eye on a crystal. It wasn't a vase. It was a vase. You know, it changes price. The dollar store has vases. She knew a lady that had a beautiful crystal vase. She said, can I borrow it? I cringed. She borrowed it. She broke it. I broke it, didn't I? It was in the van. I didn't know it was in the van. I opened the door. Out it went. Crystal into a thousand pieces. Well, you don't glue that back together. I don't know what Moses is going to do when he finally comes to his senses and realizes he broke the vase. He broke the tablets of all things. There was not a backup copy. He broke the originals. Now you've got to go face God and tell him, I didn't drop them. Somebody didn't steal them. I threw them down and I broke those silly things in a fit of anger. And Moses is a faith hero. Abraham lied about his wife being his sister, so he'd avoid conflict. Jacob was a cheat and a manipulator. Noah left the ark, got drunk, fell asleep in his tent, stark naked, embarrassed his entire family. Sarah, who'd bring forth the promised child, laughed in God's face when he said, you're going to have a child, and she laughed derisively at him. Samson, Samson, what is Samson doing in this list? Can somebody tell me this guy hung out in the red light district? He loved his prostitutes. Why is Samson a faith worthy? Samson loved the prostitutes. Rahab was a prostitute, and there she is. David, King David. Oh, we love David. But does David have feet of clay? This is the guy that lusted after a man's wife. The man was off in war for the king. While he's gone, David slips over, has an affair with his wife. A child has begun. She is carrying a child. He devises this clever plan. 
you're, you ought to be so blessed that your life is not written in the Bible for everybody else to study. So all of these details of what David is doing gets recorded forever. He says, I'll bring Uriah home and give him furlough. And while he's home, he will no doubt have some time with his wife. And then send him off to war. And when he comes home again, he'll discover that he had a baby. Except he brings Uriah home. Uriah is dedicated to the king. He said, I can't go home and sleep with my wife and enjoy my time. I'm a man of war. There's people out there dying. King, I'm going to sleep right here at the palace. David said, that's not the plan. That's not the plan. Go home. Go home. I don't want to go home. And this man full of integrity is not cooperating with this cover-up. David said, well, plan B. Send him back to the front lines and have somebody kill him and claim it was an accident. That's exactly what they do. Send him back and have him murdered. Make it look like the enemy. David's covering up. Can you see all this? David... The man of faith. Look at his life. Some people of great faith were great failures. My final point, number three, understanding the ugly side of faith helps me to understand grace. Here's what happens too often in Christianity. I read the Bible with a filter. And I read the book of Hebrews with this filter of all these inspiring feats of faith and miracles and victories. And, and I don't consider that the 11th chapter of Hebrews also concerns the ugly side of faith. I, I tend to believe with this filter as I read that Somehow, I'm falling short in my faith, otherwise I'd be perfect. And I read these stories in the New Testament, uh, about the New Testament church in the book of Acts with a filter. And I come away saying, why can't our church be a New Testament church? Have you ever thought something like that, people? Why can't our church be a New Testament church? Do you realize you are? If you aren't a New Testament church, what are you? No, no, no. I, I mean like the one in the book of Acts. Oh, you mean the one that they sold everything and they came and lived in this little experimental commune and realized it doesn't work. Nobody's supporting us. And God had to send persecution to get them out of that commune and force them to go into all the world. Because they weren't wanting to do that. They were just wanting to circle the wagons and stay there and have this little glow. The New Testament church, the early church, that what they did do, walking in power and walking in miracles, they paid a tremendous price with being beaten and flogged and imprisoned. And when people are saying, I want to be like the New Testament Christians, I want to be like the New Testament church, all you want is all the glory. You don't want the floggings. You don't want the stripes. You don't want the persecution. You don't want the jails. You just want to walk around and let your shadow fall on people and perform a lot of miracles. You just want the good stuff. There was nothing perfect about that. 
they had a great price to pay. Paul went around planting churches that just about self-destructed. He'd write them back and say, I hear things going on with you. And you read his letters, the things that were going on. And one church just got into where they had morphed the Lord's Supper into a, a drunken party. And Paul writes back and says, I cannot believe what I am hearing. What you've done. Wrote another uh, letter. And he said, I, I'm hearing this report. There's a, there's a man that is now taking his father's wife. Having an affair with her. And you people are doing nothing about it. He just couldn't believe this. And people going around say, we want a New Testament church. We've got one. With all the warts and all the difficulties and all the hardships, we've got it. So we read this Bible with this filter that gives us this unrealistic expectation. You have to understand that the most celebrated heroes of the faith had troubles and failures and disappointments and glaring imperfections, and there's only one thing that carried them. God's grace. And the only thing that they brought to the party was not this great faith that is able to speak to rocks and bring forth water. The only thing they brought to the party was just faithfulness. They made their mistakes. They knew their failures. But they never cashed in their belief in God. And you know what? at the very best, all we are here today is a bunch of failures. And the one thing we can do is just say, I've made my mistakes. I've had my troubles. I've blown it a number of times. But what I can do is not give up on God. And hope and pray when I get to the end of the line that God's grace is sufficient in spite of my failures. Faith doesn't make you a powerhouse. Faith just makes you eligible for God's grace. That's all it is. You're not perfect. We bring to Him our own tattered, broken selves. And God welcomes us in for one reason, simply because we arrived. In your imperfect state, you should not be intimidated by the characters of the Bible that seem larger than life. They needed God's grace just like I do and just like you do. And I don't want you to let the enemy discourage you and make you think you're never going to be a good enough Christian. Well, I can agree with that. You'll never be a good enough Christian. Not to earn your salvation, not to earn entrance into heaven, but you can be faithful enough that God's grace will meet you at the finish line. Put your trust in God's grace. Don't let the enemy discourage you. I have to, re I have to borrow this little story. E.V. Hill was one of the most fascinating preachers I've ever heard in my life. I wish I could preach like E.V. Hill, but can't get there. And he told the little story one time about being invited to go along on a tour, a worldwide tour with a famous politician. And everywhere they went, this politician 
this popular character and his entourage. Doors were swung open. All were allowed to enter. But Evie Hill, they stopped him. Who are you? What are you doing here? The man would turn around and say, he's with me. Come on in. Again and again, everywhere they went. They welcomed the man, his entourage. Who are you? They turned around and said, he's with me. Evie Hill said that he realizes this is exactly the way it's going to be on that great day when justice denies you entrance. Who are you? What makes you think you can just walk in here? And Jesus says, he's with me. (laughs) Come on in. That's grace. Thank the Lord for grace. Would you bow your heads?